Hello and welcome to this edition of the John G. Moore Podcast. Our guest today, a personal friend with a very personal story. The first, a word from our sponsors. Thanks to the Genesis Group, Abbey Media, and First Eyes. Highway accidents, fires, medical emergencies. When responding to these situations, every second counts and lives hang in the balance. Introducing the ultimate crystal ball for the first responders. It's called the First Eyes Drone System. Putting First Eyes on the scene so emergency personnel can respond faster, better informed, saving more lives. Drones are dispatched instantly and autonomously, flying at a mile a minute, sending clear live video, detecting hazardous gases, giving perspective and insight when every second counts and saves lives. First Eyes. My guest today is not the Jeff Johnson who ran for governor of Minnesota. He's also very glad about that. He's also not the Jeff Johnson who was a pitcher for the New York Yankees back in the 90s. And despite having been confused for him on more than one occasion, he's not the Jeff Johnson who is a political commentator and personality with black entertainment television. You see, our Jeff is taller than the other two. Seriously. No, my guest today is the other Jeff Johnson. He's a career broadcast journalist, media personality. He's appeared on Fox News, seen quoted in the New York Times, and hundreds of other media outlets. For the past three decades, Jeff has written and spoken to audiences across this great country of ours about overcoming adversity and finding contentment in the midst of life's many challenges. Jeff and his wife, Delisa, are originally from Arkansas, yay, along with their teenage daughter, Caroline. They now make their home in Northeast Texas. He describes himself as a passionate Christ follower, a devoted husband and father, and an ardent defender of the Oxford comma. He is also my very good friend. Jeff, welcome to the microphone. Thank you, John. It's good to be here. I'm glad you're here. So I am going to start this podcast by how I remember this story beginning. I'm sitting in my office, which was right across the hallway from your office, and you walked in and you closed my door. And I thought you were going to tell me that you were quitting, honestly. (laughs) And it was far worse than that. You told me that you had been diagnosed with cancer, and not just any cancer, but significantly not good prognosis cancer. So if you would, pick up the story where I just left off there and tell everybody what happened. Well, there's there's not just a little bit of irony in the fact of someone who's made their living with their voice for three decades getting throat cancer, but that is uh, exactly what happened. Uh, interestingly enough, and if you don't mind, I'm going to rewind the tape just a little bit to tell a part of the story. I had uh, a surgery on my shoulder a couple of months before this happened, and when they were intubating me for that surgery, they scratched the back of my throat. So after my shoulder healed and stopped hurting, my throat continued to hurt, and I went in to get that checked, and that is how my cancer was, quote-unquote, accidentally discovered. I don't believe it was an accident. I believe it was a miracle. Uh, I was diagnosed with, for anybody who has a medical dictionary and wants to use it, squamous cell carcinoma of the base of tongue, 
HPV-16 positive. Uh, basically, my throat cancer was caused by what is referred to as a sexually transmitted infection. It's actually a liquid or, or droplet transmitted infection. Basically, about 85% of the people in America have or have had HPV. The overwhelming majority never even know they have it. They never see any symptoms. Those who do usually get a fever blister. Those of us who win the genetic lottery get throat cancer or other cancers from HPV. So uh, in your office that day, I had just been told uh, over the phone, uh, I'd, I'd been called to be given the results of some tests that had been done. And uh, that doctor's office happened to be downstairs in the building where we worked. And I said, oh, great, you've got my results. What are they? And he said, can you come downstairs? Not they a, never not a call good, you into the office for the good news. Not a good no. thing, no. No. So uh, had a biopsy diagnosed with throat cancer. Uh, it was described to me as initially stage four, uh, an advanced, aggressive, and rare cancer. Only about 40,000 people a year get this kind of cancer. The good news is because it was not caused by smoking, which I've never done, or excessive alcohol use, which I've also never done, uh, it was much more treatable. The bad news is that it has a much higher chance of recurring, uh, but so far, so good on that. When you say stage four, give them a reference. That's as bad as it gets. It, it is, and the staging has changed twice since this happened, but originally it was stage four. Essentially, I had a, a tumor. If, if you reach up and just, uh, if you're male, if you reach up and just kind of put your thumb and forefinger on either side of your Adam's apple, I had a tumor behind that location that was the size of two golf balls. They estimate that it had been growing for a minimum of two to three years. It had also partially blocked part of my throat. It was about two-thirds in my tongue and a third out of my tongue hanging out into my throat. Had it not been found, it would have soon started to cause me difficulty eating. And if it had continued to go undiscovered and untreated, it would have eventually caused me trouble breathing. And, you know, if just totally ignored it, I would have eventually strangled. Stage four, it, it was staged down after more tests to stage three. And they, they grade it on three things. It's the size of the tumor, whether or not the adjacent lymph nodes are involved, which I had one that was, and whether or not it has metastasized or spread to any other part of the body, which it had not and still hasn't. So it was bad. It was not nearly as bad as it could have been. And I was very blessed that it was discovered relatively early compared to when and how most people find out that they have this kind of cancer. All right, so I have to point this out. You and I have talked about this. For about, I guess, maybe a year prior to you finding this out, we would go out to eat, and you would complain that you were having trouble with your throat when you were swallowing, not when you were drinking. I never noticed it when you were drinking anything. It was when you were trying to swallow certain types of food. Do you think that was the earliest sign that there was a problem? And Because it seemed like to me you went to see a doctor about it, and they dismissed it. Is that not right? That's, that's exactly what happened, and, and almost certainly those were early indications uh, that the tumor was protruding from my tongue out into the, my throat. And, uh, you know, doctors are human. It, it would be easy to get angry and say, oh, you know, he missed this, 
it happens. Uh, there were lots of other things going on with my health that could have been contributing to this. The list of things that I am not allergic to is significantly shorter, longer than the list of things that I am allergic to. So uh, I'm, I've been taking allergy medicine since I was like six years old. One time had allergy shots. I'm literally, if it produces pollen or dander, I'm allergic to it, including some people. And, you know, it was just, I, I would get sinus infections, I would get ear infections, I would, you know, have sore throat, all that kind of stuff. And they would give me antibiotics and steroids, and I would feel better for a little while. And then it would come back. And then they would give me antibiotics and steroids, and I would feel better for a little while. And then it would come back. And literally, thank God, this uh, anesthesiologist scratched the back of my throat and they wanted to be thorough, so they did what's called an upper endoscopy, where they basically stick a camera down your throat and then turn it around and look back up from the bottom and went, oh, that's not supposed to be there. And then we had the biopsy and confirmed that it was cancer. So when you came into my office, you had just been told. Yes. Like, well, sort of. Um, what I had been to I had been told when they did the endoscopy that they found a mass. And actually, yeah, and then we did a PET scan and it came back hot. It, cancer, uh, one of the ways that they identify cancer is when you do a PET scan or a PET CT scan, cancer grows really fast, especially compared to the normal growth of healthy cells in the body. And so when you feed cancer a lot of sugar that happens to be laced with a little bit of radioactive material, it glows bright orange compared to the rest of the body, which will be gray, white, or black. And so on a PET CT scan, if you have a tumor, you're going to see a lot of gray, white, and black in an orange ball. And that's what I saw in my throat, essentially this orange ball that was about the size of two golf balls compared to the rest of the anatomy. So they knew there was an issue then. I knew when he said, can you come downstairs? I knew to myself at that moment, it's cancer. I had no proof of that, and I had no medical determination of that. But I was as certain of it as I am that I'm talking to you right now. All of the tests together made that relatively certain. The interesting thing is that my ENT, my ear, nose, and throat doctor, up until the biopsy was completed, was still telling me, I don't think it's cancer. Even when he saw the video from the scope, even when he saw the PET scan, he's like, yeah, I'm not, yeah, I, I, you know, I've seen cancer before. I'm just not sure. Why was he so certain of this? Is it because it's so rare or is it because you didn't fit the profile? Uh, I have no idea. And that's a story that, I, you know, we can say for another time. But essentially, let's just leave it at this. From the moment the lab results came back during my biopsy while I was still under anesthesia, I have not had any contact with that ENT. He told my wife that I had cancer while I was still knocked out while she was sitting in a waiting room by herself and then left and left her there alone. Unbelievable. I don't know how you do that to someone. I, I will freely admit there could be a very valid justification. There may have been some kind of medical emergency. He may have had some kind of family emergency, whatever. But it's been two and a half years, and I still haven't heard from him. I, I honest, This is my guess. I think he was embarrassed. 
because he got it wrong. So he wants to just like get it off his chest quickly. Is that, I mean, you know, forgive me, but there's no excuse for that. None whatsoever. Zero. I agree. None. And you know, if you, uh, if you upset my wife, you and I have a problem. Yes, I, I completely. <laughs> so. Well, and I had just, um, when were you diagnosed? What year was that? Uh, it was March of 2018. Okay, so three years before this happened to you, I'm sitting across the hall from you having a heart attack. And at least the doctor, when he came into the ER to tell me that I'd had a heart attack or was having a heart attack, he at least waited until... My wife was there with me. I mean, he told us together. So right. good grief. That's just yeah. unbelievable. That was, uh, of all of the dealings that I had with the medical profession surrounding my diagnosis and my cancer, that honestly was the only really bad experience. I mean, I went through some really bad stuff in treatment, but as far as dealing with people and interactions with people, I really had an overwhelmingly positive experience. I dealt with a lot of really professional, really compassionate people at, at a multitude of institutions. I have to tell you, though, when you came across and told me, and I don't remember whether it was, I think that's what this is or what, all I remember hearing is I have throat cancer. That's what I remember hearing you say. Yeah. And, and the first thought I had was, this isn't fair. I used to smoke like a chimney, and I've drank, you know, and this guy doesn't smoke or drink, I should be the one that has throat cancer, not this guy. And so it, it, it still to this day makes no sense to me. Well, and I actually blame you, John. So no, I'm well, kidding. That's a, I'm totally that's, kidding. That's okay. There's a line actually forming out in the hallway. For, so you, can, you, no, can, you can pick what you, know, you want to blame me you're, for. I mean, you're right. It's not fair. Life's not fair. If this had happened to me, 20 years ago, 25, 30 years ago, I would have had a very different reaction. But uh, believe it or not, my dad was right. If you will allow the process to happen, you do mature as you grow older. Your dad was a very wise man. So our guest on the John G. Moore podcast is Jeff Johnson. He has a remarkable story about his diagnosis of cancer, how he has dealt with cancer. And the reason that I wanted to have you on is because I know you personally and you're a very private person. And so for you to go from it's none of your business to now you're out on the speaking <laughs> circuit and you are telling your story to anybody who will have you, tell us why. John, uh, I, I made a list when I got my diagnosis of goals. The first one obviously was live. But near the top of the list was, if this is going to happen to me, and obviously it is, something good is going to come out of this. I am not going, I, I, I'm not going to do this just to survive. Now, I have two very important reasons to survive, my wife and my daughter. I love them dearly and don't want to leave them because God put me here to embarrass and harass them. But I just, I, I knew I needed the additional motivation of I'm going to survive this to see what I'm supposed to learn from it so that I can share that. Do you feel like, and this is a big hypothetical question, but I'm good at hypothetical questions. <laughs> do you feel like you were meant to get this? Yes, absolutely. Uh, I, I do not blame God for this happening. I do not think God gave me cancer. 
I believe that God allowed me to get cancer because he knew that I needed a baseball bat that big to get my attention. You mind telling me why you say that? Uh, Well, I'll have to back up a couple of decades to do that. Go right ahead. In 1989, I was serving uh, in the United States Air Force. I was going through training to become a federal agent. I had been a civilian law enforcement officer for a while. I wanted to be a federal agent, but I hadn't finished college, and the military was a way to do that. I was five days away from graduating from training when I broke my back. I was originally told that I was going to be paralyzed from the waist down for the rest of my life. They were wrong. I don't even have a good story to tell about how it happened. I literally fell in a hole. That's it. Okay. There's not even a punchline. That's just it. I just fell in a hole and broke my back. And it took uh, two years of intense physical therapy to get to the point where I could walk again without a cane. I was very bitter, very angry, uh, absolutely blamed God for that at that time, um, drove away most of the people who cared about me, destroyed relationships that had been lifelong relationships. Essentially, I did everything wrong responding to that. I focused completely on myself and on what I had lost and didn't think anything about what I could learn from the situation, how it might help me grow, what opportunities it might present that maybe it was God closing the door on law enforcement because he wanted to open a better door for me, which he did. Uh, I didn't think about any of that stuff. And so I spent two years mad at the world and oh, everybody who got in my path during that time an apology. I did the physical therapy. I got a lot of range of motion back. I still have chronic pain from that. I have screws holding my spine together. But over the course of time in developing new relationships and some distance from that situation, that incident, I started to identify those mistakes. I started to realize okay, this is what I did wrong, and that's why I'm in this situation now. This is how I reacted poorly, and that's why I got this result. And in a very loose, unscientific way, I started to analyze it along the lines of, you know, if that happened again, this is what I would do differently. I think everybody looks back on on the bad things in their life and says, what could I have done differently to make that better? Obviously, not falling in the hole would have been a key, but that happened. You know, life did, wasn't perfect from that point forward. There were still other situations that happened. I, for instance, had an allergic reaction to my allergy medication <laughs> yeah, at one point and almost went into anaphylactic shock. I had an allergic reaction to an antibiotic at one point in time and my kidneys shut down and I almost had a heart attack as a result of that. So, yeah, I mean, I, 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 I jokingly say I have been shot, stabbed run over by a car by someone who wasn't trying to kill me, hit in the head with a brick by, by someone who was trying to kill me. And yes, the brick did break. So that explains a lot. Uh, I, I have a little experience with adversity. So going through all these things, it, it, as I look back on it now, I can see that as time went on and as I developed relationships with more mature people, uh, as I gained more life experience, as I realized that the world wasn't going to come to an end every time something bad happened, I sort of developed a process 
to respond to adversity. And I didn't even really realize that I was doing it. It was just kind of a reflex. And part of, you know, some of my training in law enforcement in the military is to develop systems and follow the system. And so when I knew, before I was officially told, when I knew that I had cancer, I knew that step one is don't freak out. Because what people typically do when, when they think something bad is happening, when they think a relationship is ending, when they think they're going to lose their job, when they you know think they're going to have to have the motor replaced in their car, they freak out and start going to the worst case scenario. We are, as, as human beings, we go to the worst case scenario. And it's partially a defensive mechanism. I think it's part of the survival thing, the fight or flight response to stress. But if you can just catch yourself and ask yourself the question, okay, is what I think is happening really happening? Is that what's really happening at this moment in time? And the truth was, when I came across the hall and said to you, I've got throat cancer, I did not know that for a medical scientific fact. I knew it. I knew it in my heart. I knew it in my mind, but it had not yet been confirmed. And so I had the time from that moment until I woke up from the biopsy to prepare myself for the official news, yes, you've got cancer. And that makes sense to me. And maybe it only makes sense to me because I've been through the things that I've been through. Maybe that wouldn't work for somebody who was getting hit in the face by the baseball bat of life the first time. But what, what I've discovered through all of this is that literally, if you can just catch yourself even if just long enough to take a deep breath before you respond to that bad news. It might not be as bad as you imagine. You may have misheard it. But even if it is what you thought you heard or what you think you know, if you react emotionally, especially if, if, you know, I use the phrase freak out. If you freak out, you lose all of that time while you're freaking out to formulate an effective response to what is happening. Because in the entire history of freaking out, at no point has freaking out ever made anything better. And I can promise you my 14-year-old daughter hates it when I say that. (laughs) Uh, 14-year-old daughters hate when you say everything. (laughs) This is selfish. I'm just going to say it. We were not only co-workers at that time, we were and still are best friends. And all I really heard... After you saying, I have throat cancer, was pretty much like listening to Charlie Brown's teacher. <laughs> I, I didn't really hear anything you said after that. I just thought, oh my gosh, oh my, he's going to die. I mean, this is immediately where my head went, and I thought, what can I do? What can I do? And then I realized there wasn't a thing I could do, and I'm wired that way i'm mr let's go fix we'll fix this jeff we're gonna go fix this and there was nothing i could do and i can't tell you how absolutely crushed and helpless i felt and i wasn't the guy who had the problem so i i say that to say whenever someone is diagnosed with something like this when you're told and you initially were told stage four throat cancer, turned out later it was downgraded to what, three, two? Three. 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 Downgraded to three, which is one better, but it's still awful. I just remember thinking this is going to affect so many people and that's going to bother him. 
I, I remember, I, I mean, I know you too well, and I thought, it's going to bother him more that this is affecting people he cares about than it will bother him that it's happening because you you are a Christian, and so yes. you're saved. You don't have, you, you know where you're going where you when you die. I know where I'm going when I die. But that still doesn't mean you want to get on the train today and head head that direction. And so um, wouldn't it be cool if it actually is a train? Uh, it's just, a, <laughs> just a whole other thought. Yeah. Can, I, can we take turns blowing the whistle? Yeah, <laughs> like, can I ride up front? Um, yeah. So anyway, I, I say all that to say I had been through this with my father. My father had been diagnosed with cancer. So I already knew what at least he didn't have the same type of cancer, right. but I knew what was ahead because I had been going through it uh, with my dad. And I thought, you know what? This is why you sounded like Charlie Brown's teacher. I just remember thinking, I have to be strong for him, and I have to offer to help. If there's nothing I can do, there's nothing I can do. But I really hope that there's something I can do. But the reason I wanted you to come on and talk about your journey after being diagnosed with cancer is because you've made the decision to do this, and you have spoke at a number of different events. And um, again, as I said earlier, you're a very private person, but this was something you felt like you were called to do. So what what are your plans going forward to spread this message of just because they tell you you've got cancer doesn't mean it's all over with? Because I think that's kind of your message. Am I right? It, it's that and and more. It's not just cancer. It's It's just because they tell you it's the end of the world doesn't mean it is. Um, we can choose how we react and respond to the situations in our lives. And part of that, uh, the huge part of that comes from my faith, as you mentioned. Uh, I always say I know where I'm going. It doesn't mean I want to accelerate the process. But uh, I, I have spoken to a number of different groups. I've spoken to a lot of cancer survivor groups. I've spoken to healthcare groups. And one of the things that one of my oncologists told me after my treatment was over with, they always tell you this stuff after you've been through everything. We were talking about the side effects one day, and I have significant side effects, but he, he said, you, you know that throat cancer treatment, he said, you know this is the most brutal thing we do to patients. And I said, well, yeah, cancer treatment's bad. I get that. And he said, no, you don't understand. This, this is the most brutal thing that we do to patients. And I was like, okay, so so like radiation and chemo. He said, you're not listening. Throat cancer treatment is the most brutal thing that we do to patients. And I immediately thought, okay, wait a minute. What about like open heart surgery? And so I asked him that and he said, nope, they heal faster and have fewer side effects. I said, okay, organ transplants. And he literally stroked his chin and looked up for a second and then said, "Mm, maybe. I was like, you've got to be kidding me. And and just to put that into perspective, uh, what they do is give you more radiation in a very small area of your body that has very thin tissue and not a lot to protect you from that radiation than a hundred people would receive in an average of a hundred lifetimes. And it's all directed essentially at your Adam's apple and your lymph nodes. Okay. 
I was very blessed because I had a radiation oncologist who literally turned the radiation off as he skipped back and forth over my vocal cords because I asked him to protect my voice and he was able to do that. The, uh, they described my treatment plan as looking like a normal cancer treatment plan overlaid with a 12-year-old playing asteroids uh, <laughs> because he shot around my vocal cords to get all the parts that he had missed by doing that. But anyway, so I've spoken to these these groups. One, one thing that I definitely want to do is I want to encourage people if they are eligible to receive the HPV or human papillomavirus vaccine to get that vaccine. Uh, there's been a lot of controversy over that vaccine. There was just one of the world's most famous public relations blunders in the way that that vaccine was originally promoted. When you talk about something that 85 to 95 percent of adults in the United States currently have that is very easy to transmit and that in its worst case scenario causes some of the worst cancers in existence, and it is so easily preventable. But who, so who I, can get the vaccine, though? It's a pretty narrow window. Actually, it has widened. It When it originally started, it was about eight years old at the earliest, up to about 12, 14 years old. They're now saying anyone who has not tested positive for HPV, who is between the ages of basically pre-puberty and 45 years old. And so if you don't have it, get the vaccine, because I, I will tell you the treatment that you go through, being physically strapped down to a table where you cannot move, having your head inside a plastic mask that keeps you from even twitching your ears or moving your chin around, because they have to keep everything perfectly in position to try to minimize the amount of healthy tissue that's damaged by the radiation. And then going through chemo on top of that, it's torture. It's hell. There was one point where I had to have two radiation treatments in one day because there was a holiday coming up and the radiation center was going to be closed. So they try to space them out by about six to eight hours. And after that second radiation treatment, I went back to the apartment where I was staying and I sat down on the couch and I thought to myself, this is where they're going to find me Monday afternoon after I don't show up for my treatments Monday morning. It was that bad. I didn't have the energy. I had not wisely laid my phone down on the kitchen counter as I was walking into the living room of the apartment. And I knew sitting on the couch that I physically could not crawl across the floor to get to my phone if I needed to call 911. Obviously, you and I were too old to get the HPV vaccine. Not easy to say, easy to get. <laughs> Had we been eligible, would you, if you'd gotten it, not gotten throat cancer? No, because I was probably, based on uh, the timeline and a lot of other testing and stuff, they believe that I probably got this sometime in my early to mid-20s. What HPV does, if you are susceptible to getting cancer from it, is it embeds itself within your DNA and begins to slowly mutate cells over the course of years and decades. And so the virus, I probably had the virus when I was in my early to mid-20s and developed the cancer two to three years before it was diagnosed. But it was there and slowly mutating the DNA in that region at that time. Talk about the vaccine itself. Why is it controversial? 
When the vaccine was originally introduced, because HPV is technically a sexually transmitted infection, because you can get it through sexual activity, but you can also get it through deep kissing and other things of that nature, it, it was marketed as a prevent your eight-year-old child from getting a sexually transmitted infection. Well, most parents don't react well to the thought of their eight-year-old child being sexually active, and many rightly probably thought this is ridiculous. But what they don't understand is the vaccine takes time. First of all, it's a multiple-dose vaccine, so you have to get more than one injection. And it takes time for it to teach your body how to be immune from the virus. So if you imagine the possibility that your child at 16 or 18 or 20 is going, going to become sexually active, you want them to get that vaccine when they're 11 or 12 years old so that it has time to teach their body how to fight off the virus. So this is a bunch of parents who think my kid's not going to be sexually active, so they don't need to get this, right? I, I felt exactly the same way when I first heard the, the promotional stuff for it. My daughter was three or four years old at the time. And I was thinking, yeah, no, this is stupid. We're not going to do this. We'll wait until. And, but now that I understand how the vaccine works and how the virus works, I mean, it, it took this virus 30 ish years to give me cancer. Been a vaccine back then it could have been prevented. What is the effectiveness of the vaccine? Do they know? They know preliminarily that it's very effective. It's not been around long enough for long-term studies to be completed, but the short-term it indicates that it is is very effective because it's it's weak. I mean, as as I mentioned, this cancer is very easy to kill, but has a high recurrence rate. And the reason for that is because it's not a strong virus. It's not like uh, getting the flu or getting coronavirus or getting Ebola or something like that. As I mentioned, the overwhelming majority of adults in the United States have had this virus at some point in their lives and never knew they had it. They never got any symptoms. Their body just said, oh, that's a virus. Kill it. And it did. My immune system wasn't able to do that. Jeff Johnson is our guest on the John G. Moore podcast, and he is a cancer survivor. He is a what should I call you, an advocate? Your mission now, as you have explained to me, is to go out and try to encourage people so that they don't go through mentally what you went through. You're trying to give them hope. How are you doing that? I, I call myself an inspirational speaker. I choose the term inspirational as opposed to motivational because I will talk about my faith unless I'm asked not to. And I will speak if I'm asked not to talk about my faith. I want the message out there. I would prefer to share my faith and explain all of the the miracles that happened during uh, going through treatment but I don't have to but I just I I definitely want to inspire people who are facing a cancer diagnosis and are looking at the prospect of going through treatment I want to inspire the people who love them and care about them and share ways that they can help uh, something that I've become, kind of famous or infamous for, depending on who you ask, is I wrote uh, a piece called The Top 10 Things I Wish Everyone Knew About Cancer. And many of those things are kind of uh, in your face, please stop doing this or please stop saying this kind of things. I'm nicer about some of them than I am about the others, because the truth is, if you've never experienced this or you've never had a loved one who's experienced this, you don't know. 
But just as an example, one of the items on that list is asking a cancer patient, what can I do to help? That person is going through, they've, they've got a thousand and one things going through their mind. They've got all these things added to their to-do list that they didn't have before they had cancer. They're dealing with the side effects of treatment. And now you're asking them to evaluate whether or not you're sincere and which one of the things on their list that you're actually willing and able to do. Instead, just make a specific offer. Say, can I mow your lawn? Can I bring you a meal? Can I wash your car? I promise you, if a cancer patient looks out their window and sees you mowing their yard, they are not going to call the police. It, did you bring up that one because I offered to mow your lawn? You did. Yeah. But it was the first thing I thought of. And that's great. That's the thing. There was I didn't have to think about that. I was able to say, thank you. Someone else has already taken care of that. And this is the thing. It is perfectly okay to say, I'm thinking about you or I'm praying about you for you and not offer to do anything. Because the fact that you're acknowledging what I'm going through means something. There, there are a lot of people, especially when you're talking about cancer, there are, there are a lot of people that their friend or their distant family member says, I've got cancer, and they shut down. They don't know how to react so they create distance and they stop responding and they stop communicating. And, and I had that happen to me with someone who still to this day, if, if I like see them in the hallway, they will turn and go in a, a room to avoid me. And at first it bothered me. And now I'm like, wait a minute. That's how they are able to deal with this. So I, I, I want them to be okay with the way I'm dealing with it. So I need to be okay with the way they're dealing with it. So that's, you know, it's, it's a lot of it is just sharing things that you can't know until you either live through the experience or somebody tells you. And a lot of people won't tell you. They won't say, hey, you know, right now, yes, I want you to come over and visit me. I want to spend time with you. That's great. Later, you call and say, can I come over? No, I really want to be alone right now. Some people won't say that. They don't want to offend you. They don't want to hurt your feelings. You need to be okay if you are interacting with someone who's a cancer patient or going through any other kind of, of serious situation, any kind of tragedy or adversity. You need to be okay with how they deal with it. Well, if they want to hear the rest of your top 10, they're going to have to come hear you speak publicly. That's the one little teaser that they get. <laughs> you talking about this reminds me of um, when, when something bad happens to you. In my case, like I said, it was a heart attack. People don't know what to say, and so they always say the dumbest things. And my, <laughs> and my personal favorite was, you know, my uncle had a heart attack. It's as if that's going to make me feel any better. And then they add on, but it was a mild one. I remember saying, you know, a mild heart attack is one that you're not having. Bingo. <laughs> Absolutely. So, but one, one of the other items on that list is please do not minimize what's happening. I've mentioned side effects. I'll just run through the, the brief list. I have severe dry mouth. I have to drink water all the time. I have to take medication for the dry mouth. I have lost a significant portion of my taste. Food doesn't taste right. I have peripheral neuropathy, which is numbness and tingling in my fingers and toes, the bottom of my feet, and my lips when I try to say the phrase peripheral neuropathy. I have occasional chemo brain. That is the most annoying because the particular way that it manifests for me is I will lose a word. I will be speaking a sentence, and one word out of that sentence will disappear out of my vocabulary, and I can't get it back. 
20 or 30 seconds later, it'll come back or 20 or 30 minutes. But it's just so incredibly frustrating to be talking to someone. And, you know, you're saying we drove across the and the word bridge just is gone. You can see a bridge, but you can't say the word. And then I also have developed a heart condition as, as a result of that. They say it's not life-threatening right now. But so all of this is is piled on. All of these things are there, and it makes people uncomfortable. I'm sure someone listening to this right now heard me going through all that, and they're like, they're cringing. They're like, yeah, I don't want to think about that. I don't. And, and part of it is our natural fear that at some point we may get cancer. I think everyone hears the C word, and they're like, yeah. When you minimize, when you downplay, you know, well, at least you didn't die or, well, at least you're able to this or, well, at least you're able to that. And and people don't mean anything bad by it. They're not trying to be mean or disrespectful or hurtful. They're trying to be encouraging. But most people won't say, hey, that's not cool. That's not a good way to address this. I'm going to be that guy. I'm going to be the one who stands up and says, if you really care about somebody, don't say this stuff to them. Right. No, you're absolutely right. I think it is out of ignorance. Uh, good intentions, but ignorant. You don't say things like that to people when they're going through something traumatic, especially when they just found out, you know, to try and downplay it is not the way that you do it. Beyond the speaking circuit, you have other plans. Tell us what they are. I have a YouTube channel. I actually started making videos when I got my diagnosis. And essentially what I have is a how to be a cancer patient set of videos, uh, particularly applicable if you are going through head and neck cancer because it's a more specific thing. Right now, I think there are about 22 videos there, and it just walks you through the different stages of treatment. I've had people from all over the world contact me through my YouTube channel and ask for advice. And I always tell people I don't give medical advice, but I'll tell you about my experience and the things that I learned, little tricks that I learned about how to deal with the side effects and the, the pain and all that kind of stuff from treatment. I had a lot of traffic there and a lot of people watching those videos. So those are available. I also am in the process of developing a podcast. What I want to do is interview people who've been through other kinds of adversity and see what we can learn from them to add to my list of ways to better deal with challenges and adversity. Because, you know, it, it, we, we have instruction manuals for how to maintain and repair our car. We have uh, courses that we take in college that we use to guide us through our careers. But we really don't ever sit down and study in advance okay, if I'm faced with a life-changing situation, with a life-changing adversity or tragedy, how should I deal with that? And maybe we should. Maybe that should be a, a, a college course somewhere or, or something that we teach for a week in high school or something to prepare people to at least give you a little bit of an outline so that you're not blindsided. Because I think, I know when I broke my back, I was blindsided. When I broke my back, I had been a law enforcement officer. I'd been involved in martial arts for decades, years at least. I had I was reasonably in, in good shape. And I had a plan for my life that involved me being physically active and involved in a profession where you are working with people and, you know, getting wrecked cars out of the street and dragging people out of burning buildings, whatever, you know. And all of the sudden, I was facing the prospect of spending the rest of my life in a wheelchair and nothing specific that I had read or heard 
prepared me mentally to respond to that. Now, I had grown up in the church and I had been taught things about trusting God and putting my faith in him, but that doesn't tell you, okay, how do I get to the bathroom? And so what I'm doing is is kind of gathering information from people about the specifics of one person I talked to, they were in a car wreck and they lost the use of their legs. And these are the things that they did to adapt. What I'm doing, I hope no one ever, ever again needs. I would love it if nobody ever needed to watch one of my YouTube videos. But the reality is we live in a world where there's cancer. We live in a world where there are car wrecks. We live in a world where there are drive-by shootings. We live in a world where there are heart attacks. People who have not been through those experiences need to, if they aren't prepared in advance, they need to at least have some place to turn to get answers and not the pretty, socially acceptable, right, polite answers, the down and dirty gut, I live through this and here's what I learned from it answers. Maybe what we need rather than having a class in high school, I do think we need a class in high school that teaches kids how to balance their checkbook and operate a lawnmower and do nuts and bolts things around the house. But at the very minimum, we should have someone like you come into a school and talk about, hey, you know, there are things in life that are devastating because the odds are somebody in that classroom has already been through this with a relative. I mean, they call it, I, I can remember as a kid, they called it the C word, you know, don't say, oh, yeah. don't say the C word. Having grown up in the 60s, there wasn't really much they could do. Really, there wasn't a lot they could do for cancer or heart problems. It was almost not forbidden, but it was frowned upon to even talk about if somebody had cancer or heart disease because it was a death sentence back then. Yeah, I can remember a conversation. I had an aunt, Aunt Mary, who was diagnosed with cancer. And I remember my mom telling someone, do you know Mary's got cancer? And the response was, how long does she have? That's still the response most people get today yeah. because they and, don't understand that there are prostate cancer, for example, very treatable. What you had, this is what you told me, had this happened to you how many years before did you say that you wouldn't have been able to get this treatment? Five to 10 years, uh, they didn't really know about the differentiation between HPV-caused cancers and environmentally-caused cancers. And so the treatment at, at that point, 10 years ago for sure, would have been a radical dissection and laryngectomy. I would have lost all of the lymph nodes from the top of my collarbone to the bottom of my jaw, and they would have taken my voice box and about two-thirds of my tongue, and I would have been eating through a tube for the rest of my life. There have even been improvements since I went through treatment. The, I, I told you that the staging guidelines changed and it went from four down to three while I was going through the planning for my treatment. Uh, those guidelines have been changed again because of new things that they've learned. And now the cancer that I had would be staged at stage two, which would mean that I would have received less radiation, probably the same chemo, but I would have received less radiation. So the side effects could have been reduced some. That progress will continue. There was a study done by Memorial Sloan Kettering uh, that wrapped up about the time that I uh, finished treatment. It was a five-year study with about 500 patients. And they determined that half of the radiation that I received is 90 plus percent effective in killing this cancer. Now, that has to be tested much more broadly and confirmed over varying age groups and, and other variables with the disease. 
but medicine is advancing so much faster than it did even when we were young men. It is amazing to me, you know, you you can read the latest cutting edge research and by the time you really have time to think about it and digest it if you're a physician and consider applying it in your practice, you really need to go back and check again to make sure it hasn't been updated. Yeah, things do change quickly. I remember thinking when I was treated for the heart attack, I'm not going to go into what they did, but I lost my sister at age 52 from a heart attack. I lost my grandfather at age 60. So obviously there is a genetic piece to this on at least one side of my family. But I remember after the doctor came in and talked to me about what they were going to do, they hadn't done it yet, my grandfather would have lived had that been available in 1978. But it was not available in that. It wasn't available in 1988. Probably uh, because of where it was, it wasn't available in 98. When things happen and you survive them, I'm like you. You have to look at the bright side because that's really the only thing that keeps you sane because there's a period I think most people go through where you just don't trust your body anymore. You go from trusting your body to not trusting your body. And I think the fact that you're willing to go out and share your story of, you know, it's okay if you can trust God and you can trust medicine, then you're probably going to be okay. And it brings me back to the point you made earlier where you said, you know, if they asked me not to talk about my faith, I can't imagine anybody telling you don't talk about your faith. But I'll say this, if anybody is going through something like this and they're not a person of faith, I don't know how they get through it. I really don't. I have no idea. Uh, if, if we have time, I'd like to tell one quick story. I had a prayer that I prayed every day from the moment that I knew I had cancer on. I told a handful of people about it. I didn't. I never posted it on social media. I never put it on my website. I never mentioned it in any of the YouTube videos. And I've also never been able to tell this story without crying, so I apologize. I prayed that my cancer would be completely cured and that somehow God would use my experience to bring people closer to his son, Jesus. My wife knew that. My pastor knew that. One of our deacons knew that. You may have known that. I honestly, because of what I was going through, can't remember if I told you or not. But I did not advertise that fact. The last week of treatment, I was so sick and so weak that I was not able to drive myself. I had to take Uber back and forth to MD Anderson Cancer Center. And I was outside waiting on my Uber driver. I was tired. There was not an empty bench available. There was no social distancing back then. You could actually be friendly to people. And there was an older couple sitting on a bench, but there was plenty of room for me to sit down at the end. So I walked over and looked at the empty seat and got the approval nod from the the lady that it was okay to sit down beside her. And I thanked her. She said, you're welcome. We would have struck up a conversation, but my Uber driver called and he was lost. Now, I don't know if you've ever been to Houston, Texas, but if you're an Uber driver in Houston, Texas, and you can't find the MD Anderson Cancer Center, you should probably reconsider your career choice. Yeah. He was having a little difficulty finding me. So I was on the phone with him and we did this, this couple and I, we did not get to have a conversation. So I finished up with him. And about the time I finished up with him, their car pulled up and they got up to go to the car. Her husband got up and walked to the car to open the door for her. And she got up and started walking toward the car. She stopped. She turned around and she walked right back up in front of me a little bit uncomfortably close. 
and she held her hand out like the, you know, how you shake hands with the little old lady at church and they put one hand on top and the other hand they're shaking hands with you. And she cupped my hand and she said, God wants to bless you right now. He wants you to know that your cancer is completely healed and that he is using this experience in your life to bring people closer to Jesus. God bless you. She squeezed my hand, she smiled, and she turned around and walked away while I went, uh, 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 and could not get words to come out of my mouth because I had never seen this woman in my life before or since. There is no explanation for her knowing what I was praying other than that God told her and sent her to say those things to me. We're not exactly sure who she was, are we? I have no idea. And you know what? If someone hears that and chooses to believe that that was a coincidence, I'm okay with that. But I don't believe it was a coincidence. I believe whether she was a human or whether she was an angel or whatever, that that was a direct message from God to me that when you believed that I've got this, you were right. I've got this. And we're going to make something good come out of it. People who are on the speaking circuit have lost their speaking engagements because of the COVID thing. So do you have another one lined up at some point that's open to the public? or you? I don't right now. Everything that I, Literally everything that I had booked has canceled. I offered to do virtual, and I'm still willing to do virtual presentations. If anybody wants to see one of those, we can do you know Zoom, whatever, FaceTime, whatever technology you want to use. I've got a little bit of everything. I actually have a television studio in my home. I'm available. I want people to know that bad things are going to happen, and that's okay because, and and I say this and I mean this, I've had a lot of bad things happen to me in my life. I've had a lot of great, incredible, good things happen to me in my life. I spent a decade of my career in Washington, D.C., working as an investigative and political reporter, and for a political junkie who's a journalist, that's pretty much the gig. But I've had a lot of bad things that have happened to me. And through all the bad things, all the good things, nothing that has happened to me has brought me closer to my family and the people that I love or strengthened my faith in God more than being diagnosed with going through treatment for and surviving cancer. He has blessed me in a hundred, if not a thousand different ways, given me experiences like the one that I just told you about that have absolutely confirmed that he is real and that he loves me and that he is actively involved in my life. There were lots of other things where I prayed something and there was a direct answer to that prayer that I told no one but God what I needed and he met that need. And, and that's a story that needs to be heard too. There's so much turmoil in our world. And it honestly doesn't matter when you're listening to this, there's so much turmoil in our world. That statement is going to be true until the end of time. But there is a consistency. You know, I talk about the difference between happiness and contentment. I've been happy in a lot of different situations in my life. But happiness is like the waves on the top of the ocean. They peak up and then they fall down. And that's what your happiness does. You can be happy at one minute and sad the next. But in the depths of the ocean, 
there are these very strong currents that always flow in one direction. And if you hit one of those intercontinental currents, you can be carried from one continent to another quickly. And it's always going to flow the same direction and it's always steady. That is contentment. It's the difference between the waves and the deep current. And happiness is great. If you get happiness, enjoy it. Don't chase after happiness. Don't work for happiness. Don't put your faith in happiness. If you're going to go for something, go for contentment because there's peace in contentment. Am I happy about the fact that I went through throat cancer treatment and have all these stupid side effects? No, it stinks. But I am content in knowing that, and I don't say this in a, a braggadocious way. I think anybody who's known me for more than 10 years will tell you this. I am a much better person now because of having gone through cancer than I was before. So how can we book you? I have a website. It, 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 we, I jokingly talk about being the other Jeff Johnson because I'm never the Jeff Johnson people are referring to when they say, are you the Jeff Johnson? Who? But it's never me. So it is uh, Todd, T-O-J-J for the other Jeff Johnson, T-O-J-J talks.com. All right, so we can book you uh, through an email there. We can... There's a form and a phone number there, however you prefer. All right, do you charge to speak? It depends. If it costs me a lot to get to you, yes, if I have to fly or something like that. I have not charged to nonprofit organizations. Okay. Uh, so that's uh, – I, I have done motivational speaking in the past after I broke my back. I Years after that, I told that story – and talked in some of the early stages about this system that I mentioned earlier that I've kind of developed for dealing with adversity. And I did that on the professional speaking circuit where I had a fee and travel costs and all that kind of thing. Right now, it's the answer, honestly, is it depends. Okay. Are you naming your podcast yet? Do we know what you're going to call your podcast? Is that still in the works? Uh, at this point, it is probably going to end up being the other Jeff Johnson show. When I did talk radio, that was the name of my show. And I've had a lot of cute ideas. You know that I love coming up, developing brands and creating things like that. I've, I've built more than 200 websites and a lot of them have been for brands that I developed and ended up selling off or did all the work and then went, wow, that was a really stupid idea. And I like to do that kind of thing, but really it's, I, I don't want to be locked in. I, you know, like you named your podcast after yourself. You can go where you feel led to go with your podcast. I don't want to have a name or a title or something that says, this is all I can talk about. I don't want to do, for instance, I don't want to do a politics podcast. There are lots of great politics podcasts out there from people who know more about it than I do and who are closer to it than I am. And I don't want to be locked into that. Now, that doesn't mean I might not talk about that at some point in time, especially if it's politics that has to do with making it more difficult for people to overcome adversity. I definitely might address it at that point. But right now, it's probably going to be the other Jeff Johnson show. What do you want to say that we haven't talked about? Uh, there is hope. There is always hope, even if the cancer is stage four, even if it's not curable, even if it's this is how long you've got to live, or we don't know how long you have to live. There is a guy named Jesus who loves you, and he gave his life in place of yours. And he not only wants you to spend eternity with him in heaven, but he just as importantly wants you to have a more contented life here on earth. 
I can't thank you enough for being willing to come on. I, I mean, I knew you before, and you were a very private person, and you were very much a it's-none-of-your-business kind of guy, <laughs> and that's okay. But I am glad that you went this direction with this and that you're willing to share it. I wish you big success. I hope that people who are listening to this will share this podcast on their social media pages because I can tell you from personal experience that I don't know one person who hasn't been touched by cancer. It is prevalent. You know, I, I tell people when I'm speaking, we have this fear of cancer. And, and one of the things that can help overcome that is just understanding what cancer is. Cancer is just a cell or group of cells that don't stop growing when they're supposed to. I did not know that until I was in my 50s, but that knowledge helped me, along with a lot of other things, to say, okay, wait a minute, cancer is this big, ominous thing that, you know, like we said, how long do they have, was the response when we were kids. And now, a lot of cancers that were completely guaranteed fatal not too long ago are very treatable now. A lot of the really bad side effects from cancer treatment they have ways to mitigate those now that they didn't have two, five, ten years ago. So it really is about the perspective. It really is about looking at the situation and saying, okay, uh, there are a lot of resources. And honestly, it's about not being afraid to ask for help. Jeff Johnson, the other Jeff Johnson, he beat cancer and he's my friend. Thank you for being on today. I appreciate it, Jeff. It's an honor. What's your website again? T-O-J-J-TodgeTalks.com. We want to thank our sponsors for being here for us and making this possible. The Genesis Group, Abbey Media, and First Eyes. You've been listening to the John G. Moore Podcast. We thank Jeff for being on this week. We will talk to you next Saturday. Have a great rest of your week. God bless. God bless.